0: I uh, recently uh, looked back over, uh, looked back, excuse me, listened back over a few of our of the previous podcasts and realized that a disproportionate number of them started off with we don't have an intro again. That is not going to happen again.
1: That, That must be a theme for this podcast. No intro.
0: Well, Maybe. So, hello everyone, this is The Food Show, episode 60 for May Ampersand 2014. Wait, that's not quite right. Uh, hey everyone, this is Control Structure, episode 60 for May 7th, 2014. Uh, hello to everyone listening. Uh, so, I am your host, uh, Andrew Bailey. Uh, you may recognize me from uh, that one podcast called Control Structure and a uh, few other things I did several years ago. Uh, with me today again is steven orvis hello hi so how's uh, co-hosting going for you
1: uh so far so good
0: <laughs> well that's great so uh before we get too much further uh for those of you listening who are not on the uh on the nexus.tv uh for instance you're listening through itunes so uh if you're wondering if this show does have show notes it does and visit thenexus.tv/cs60 to see them. So that that's quite a mouthful there. So hey, uh, speaking of, this is the food show, right? Okay. So so you
1: you need to go back and explain to me again why this is the food show because I think you've told me, but I forget.
0: Uh yeah okay uh you know that's a nice refresher for you know everyone else. So on this network there are well about three shows. Uh, one of them is At the Nexus, which is the premiere one. And they like to talk about consumer technology and general technology stuff. And that generally uh, compromises gadgets. You know, cell phones, tablets, you know, stuff like that. Because that's pretty much all they ever talk about. So that's the gadget show. Uh, then there's the gaming show, uh, 8-Bit. It's the innuendo show, I like to call it. Um... We, however, are you know the programming design you know like build stuff podcast, uh, but what we really talk about is food. So we
1: did talk about pizza last time.
0: Yes, and we're going to talk about pizza again. So uh, uh, later on in the show, uh, we'll be talking uh, you know about the listener feedback, and one of them was uh, Ryan wondering uh, what pizza I was eating and uh well let's just go ahead and talk about restaurants shall we so i just realized
1: by saying that we are going to talk about food on the show is kind of like a while we're on the show is kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy
0: yes it is <laughs> which is a previous episode title um but uh so, let's see, I was—I actually had eaten that pizza on 420. Uh, that was actually from Pizza Milano, and I like it because it's cheap, it's close by, and I can remember the phone number: 412 four one two four nine four nine four nine four.
1: So, so when you said remember the phone number in the show notes, what came to my mind was on IT Crowd. Have you, have you seen that show?
0: No, I don't okay, watch TV. Can...
1: Oh yes, I forgot. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so. <laughs> It's 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 a pretty good uh, show that it's about two guys over in Britain, and they they like you know technical support for this company. But anyways, on it they have these fake advertisements about kind of uh, like how we do. Yes, kind of like how we do. And the fake advertisements are for their emergency number. So instead of nine one one over there, it's like four eight nine nine one nine nine two or some really long number. They have this song for the number that they that they play each time help you mem- memorize this 20-digit number.
0: Well, I mean, I sort of knew that phone numbers were really long over in Europe, but I didn't think that there were 20 numbers long. Let's look it up and see. I mean, American phone numbers are like 10. There you go. It's, 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 it's actually really long. Let's see here. Uh,
1: yes, we got it. Okay, so I will post it I guess you put it in the banter spot section. Yep, yep. Wait, what is Google Docs doing to me? There you go. And let's see how many characters long it is.
0: Ah, uh, you epically failed that. Mm. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh um, right. We still talk about restaurants. So uh let's see, new emergency services. Oh wow, that is pretty long. It's 20, I was right, and that was just a guess. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, zero one one eight nine 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 eight eight one nine 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 one one nine seven two five three. Yes, and there's a really.
1: I assume the video probably has it in it. It's it's got like this singing song that they do when they when they uh repeat the number. It's it's pretty funny.
0: So, uh, let's see. Then there's all the restaurants that uh, you know us and the guys have been to. So there's the Permani or permonti, if you like to spell out each letter, uh, like those of us from the Midwest do. Um, you know, the uh, the sandwiches with the coleslaw and the fries on it. Yep. That's pretty much all that they do. Uh, then, uh, let's see, there's the uh, Mark Pies in the uh, Galleria, which you somehow ducked out two weeks in a row on. So... I thought you
1: guys went to the Chinese restaurant. Yeah, in... that's
0: that's the Mark Pies China Oh, game. okay. So, it sort of goes by two names. I see. Um, So, let's see. Also, uh, it was on Saturday, I think, I uh, got some coupons uh, from Fox's Pizza Den. You ever tried that? Not sure I had pizza from Fox's Pizzas before. Um, So, uh, I hadn't, so I'm like, hey, I got a coupon here, so um, turns out that Apparently they say that they're like one of the top 25 pizza chains in the country. So, and uh, I think it's the sauce mostly. Um, And I think it might have been because I had tomatoes on my pizza as well, that it tastes just a little bit sweet. So that's a pretty uh, interesting taste there. So, hey, uh, it's been a while there, but uh, maybe we can have a Kickstarter this time.
1: Yes, today's kickstarter is Go Pie Go. Uh let me see the name of the company. It is
0: Dexter Industries. Yes,
1: Dexter Industries. They're designing a robot mount for the Raspberry Pi and it has like a, a case around the Pi and then a battery pack for AA batteries, it has some wheels and some motors and optionally a, a camera or a sonic sensor mounted on it. And uh So the Kickstarter is to help them to get this into production. They already have the prototypes going. Uh, They just want to produce it and make better uh, software libraries of examples of what you can do with this. And, of course, the goal is to make kids program at earlier ages. For the rest of us who are just having fun, they have different levels of the Kickstarter. Uh, I'm trying to find them.
0: Yeah, it looks like, looks like they, uh, package in some kind of goodies. Yes.
1: I I guess. So for $67, you get just the, the pie robot itself, the, the motors and the battery pack and the case. And for 101, you can get the sonic sensor as long, in addition to the case. And for 119, you can get the camera and the, the robot. For 130, 129, you can get the the camera and the sonic sensor as well as the the Pi case. And they have other ones too with the Wi-Fi dongle and SD card, but those are aren't that special of pieces so, of hardware.
0: So you may remember Dexter Industries as the people behind the Brick pie, uh which is one of their previous Kickstarter's I actually uh, funded. So.
1: So, so I was curious, did they actually produce it about the time they had estimated?
0: Uh, I think so. Um, they they might have actually went a little bit over by about a month or two, but... Um, Estimates are tough. <laughs> yeah, but then that was like pff, about eight months uh, in advance. So, I mean, they said it, this is just off the top of my head, that uh, they said it would ship in eight months and it took maybe ten. So that's not too bad. Yeah.
1: Considering you're estimating something and bringing it to market, and
0: and I distinctly recall them like having a rush option where, uh, like they would send you the parts but unsoldered. Oh wow! <laughs> and for even more, they would hand solder it themselves before they shipped it. So this is like the pre that the robot
1: soldering it there. They go ahead and solder it for you just to get it in your hands. <laughs> so
0: that's uh, pretty sweet there.
1: Yes, I'm thinking I'll I'll do something there. At least the the base, I might go for the camera and sonic sensor. I think those would be really fun and probably be better to have their camera to work with their software they've made.
0: Dell Dell Del? Dell So uh Dell's been around for a long time. So like yeah, apparently it's been around for uh 30 years and uh, apparently their anniversary is coming up uh pretty soon. So uh it says a month of May marks a big milestone for Dell. We turned 30. It's been a thrilling ride started started in 1984 with $1000 and a team of one.
1: I, I thought that was interesting. The thousand dollars was their starting amount. It was interesting. I wonder what they—they they don't really explain what they did with the thousand dollars. What did they do? Hire someone? Uh,
0: well, I—I'm assuming that went to like initial acquisition of like uh, materials or something. Uh, because as far as I know, Dell started this out of his uh, college dorm room.
1: Wow. So what did he do? What was the first thing that Dell did?
0: Uh, he built computers.
1: So he so he just bought parts and started selling Apparently. Dell computers with stickers on the front. This is Dell.
0: <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so it's interesting uh, that this started in 1984 um, because that, you know, in January, that was when the Mac was released. Okay, so tell me again, when did the Dell start? Uh, May
1: 1984. Okay, so it was right after the Mac? Yeah. Thing. Okay.
0: So, and, uh, you know, I guess, at least now, Dell sort of gets a bad rap for, you know, having sucky computers. But, you know, then again, back in the day, that's what everyone had. Well, pretty much everyone. Um, You know, like today, they're just Pentium 4 boxes with Windows XP on them. Um, And, in fact, I'm pretty sure that we still have some just lying around our office, uh, like, mostly not being used. And, uh, the one I have sitting on the shelf beside me, uh, has RD-RAM in it. Uh, RC that's...
1: RD-RAM?
0: Yeah, uh, Rambus Dynamic Memory. Ah. Uh. So, it's not quite like DDR, um, but yeah, that was, like, the thing that, uh, uh, Intel wanted to do, uh, with the Pentium 4s when they first came out. Uh, but everyone's like, hey, DDR is cheaper, and that's what AMD used. And, uh, you know, because Dell was uh, Intel only and remains heavily Intel uh, based, you know, that's, of course, that's what they used. So, um, and then nowadays I have a Dell CRT monitor behind me for my 20th century, um, which uh, is actually a funny story with that. So, uh, like, one of my best friends, uh, like, they were... Uh, Like all the computers they bought were pretty much Dell's. And I remember them buying, I think it might have been the second generation uh, XPS desktops. Uh, You know, it was pretty much the fastest computer that anyone around had seen. uh, Aside from it having a Pentium 4 and not an AMD chip in it. So, uh, and I think at the time they started moving towards like proprietary parts. But then they realized, or something happened, that they went back to standardized parts. Because I remember, uh, like guides, like everywhere saying that you can't upgrade your Dell PSU because, like, you know, other power supplies aren't compatible with it.
1: Huh? Now that would be really annoying because the power supply is such considered such a standard device these days. So I found a, a biography page on. Michael Dell. There, I posted on the the links page. There's uh, something that was interesting. Oh, right. There it says, intrigued by the expanding world of computers and gadgetry, Dell purchased an early Apple computer at the age of 15 for the strict purpose of taking
0: it apart to see how it worked. I bet he voided his AppleCare warranty. <laughs> Just might have. <laughs>
1: and so, in answer to the what we were talking about, what he did with his $1,000. Yes, it was. It says he started building and selling computers for people he knew at college. But it was on
0: strong customer support and cheap prices. Yes. So, oh, it looks like he's a college dropout. Another one of those guys who dropped out of college
1: and succeeded. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I like the part uh, earlier it said, uh, Dale's success wasn't entirely... Oh, wait a minute. While his mother, a stockbroker, and his father, an orthodontist, pushed their son to consider medicine, Dell showed an early interest in technology and business. So he's like, nope, sorry, not going to be a dentist.
0: And uh, my dad's a nurse, and he was not really that into me. He really didn't care what field I went into, let's just say. <laughs> so.
1: It, it, when I first started getting interested in computers, like my dad kind of thought they were a waste of time. But then, about the time where I started looking at like colleges and stuff and degrees, and suddenly it's like you see his attitude shifts. It's like, oh, wait, he could like maybe make money at that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, he didn't realize that whole dot com boom. Like, 15 I, years
1: ago? I don't know. I I, remember, I just remember getting yelled at once for, like, spending time on the computer. That's, like, when I was making, like, my first website ever, like, <laughs> HTML and stuff. I remember I got yelled at for spending all my time in on the computer instead of being outside or something.
0: Yeah, I can't remember how many times my mom decided, you know, just on random days, okay, you spend enough time on the computer, you know, go to do something else. And, and it was just this completely random timer. That just went off inside her head. <laughs> Ding, Andrew needs to go outside. <laughs> so, oh, hi, Mom. Uh, is it snowing yet? That's one of her words. She doesn't like that word. I see. So, uh, let's see. Moving on here. You remember uh, uh, 2048? Yes, I do remember 2048. That's the
1: game where you have the, the numbers. It starts up with twos, and you merge them together, and eventually your goal is to get to a 2048.
0: Uh yes, so the guy behind that, uh, Gabriel Gabriel Cerulli, uh Italian, uh guy by the sounds of it, um, uh, he tells a story about you know actually you know creating the game, uh, like what his attitudes were about making money off of it and uh, making a mobile version. So you know he. Found it, he was sort of like awestruck at the, uh, uh, at the sort of fame of, uh, making something that suddenly millions of people are playing at once. So, and because his game was built off of other games, off of other people's ideas, he really didn't feel, uh, he sort of felt morally obligated to not sell it.
1: Yes. The, the interesting thing was even in his mobile version he made, he said that he didn't reuse logic except for the the logic of choosing where to place the twos. I think was the only one he he or reused.
0: I, I think also the
1: movement. I think. It was oh, actually maybe that's way. what it was. The movement. Yeah. But everything else he said he he wrote entirely separate. Just because he didn't make it open source at this point in time, so he he didn't want to duplicate that logic. So it sounds like he's a very conscientious guy.
0: So and. You know, about how the people around him were like, no, 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 you're going to regret this. <laughs> you know, like not cashing in on this. So, and
1: see, see, the thing is, he still has fame of having done that. He might probably still be able to get a job someplace. Yeah. But of course, I mean, maybe he could have made his millions selling someone else's idea. But he right. chose not to. So, good for him.
0: Yep. So, it looks like he used a uh, phone gap uh, yes, to do this.
1: I hadn't heard of them before, but I was looking up on the website. It sounds like you can just use like HTML and CSS and jQuery and stuff like that. And, and I guess you send it off to the site, and then they compile it with your thing and send you back the app. So the right. bad part that I saw was, well, if they go away or they want to charge you money to build the app, suddenly you're stuck. But yeah. it's a nice concept, though. I It's worth playing around with sometime. So...
0: Uh, looks like we'll be on, uh, talking about gaming here for the next couple of minutes. So, uh, here's something that you probably haven't heard of. Uh, Brian Fargo, uh, this is the man who made Fallout and, uh, Wasteland before it, uh, talks about his experience in the games industry and the frustrations behind finally bringing Wasteland 2 to life, even after trying to pitch it to publishers for over ten years. So, he, uh, you know, starts out... Uh, you know, going even all the way back before, uh, was it, uh, was it Info something, uh, Interplay, uh, that was, like, pretty much the company that he founded, and he, you know, that company made quite a few, uh, memorable games back in the late 90s, uh, one of which was probably, uh, Fallout, which was probably, like, their, uh, their most well-known series, so, uh, He pretty much did that as a response to not having the rights to his previous game, Wasteland. So he sort of like, you know, how should I say, uh, did a knockoff of his own game. (laughs) Which is kind of funny when you think about it. So instead of, I'm not exactly sure what the setting for Wasteland was, but... Uh, from what I know of, or at least what I've seen of Wasteland 2, is, like, there was some sort of biological apocalypse happened, where suddenly, like, there's plants everywhere. So, instead of, like, being invaded by plants, Fallout was, uh, based on 1950s nuclear hysteria, in which the bombs actually went off. So... Uh, you know, instead of there being deadly plants everywhere, there's radiation everywhere and some places, deadly plants. <laughs> <laughs> so he still doesn't get away from the deadly <laughs> plant idea. He seems or at least mutated things. Uh, so, uh, apparently about 10 years ago, he actually regained the rights to, uh, that wasteland game, uh, pretty much after he had Uh, or at least Interplay, had sold off the rights of Fallout to Bethesda, who went on to create uh, Fallout 3 and uh, uh, New Vegas. Um, So, for like 10 years, he was going around to publishers who were like maybe half of his age, uh, trying to pitch this, to pitch a sequel to this really old game that, uh, you know, they were barely, you know, born at the time it came (laughs) out. Um, And Uh, I remember him making a video, uh, you know, pitching Wasteland 2 to essentially, like, a 10-year-old. And, you know, this 10-year-old's asking all of these publisher-like questions of, you know, what's the catch? You know, how much money do you think we'd make off of it and such? And, uh, like, to that point, he complains that, uh, you know, publishers, they really want uh, new ideas. Uh, However, all that they seem to do are publish sequels so they don't exactly put their money where their mouth is. Um, And he really didn't uh, see the point in, you know, it's essentially a game that's made, like, 25 years after uh, the original, which, as far as I know, is, you know, Wasteland 2 and Wasteland, that's, like, the longest period of time between franchise installments that I can think of. What was the time period between them? 10 years? Um... I think it came out in like 1989 the original one. Yeah, okay. And uh, Wasteland 2 is now in open beta on Steam. So huh? like 25 years. That's
1: quite a long time. I think I found that the YouTube video of him pitching the the Wasteland. I haven't watched it yet, but it it looked like that. So,
0: uh, you know, he uh, finally says that uh yep, that's the one. Okay. Um he uh you know, when uh uh, Tim Schafer did uh, Broken Age on Kickstarter. That you know pretty much opened up the floodgates for everyone who had you know even you know mildly famous game designers uh who wanted their ideas to come to life but could not persuade a publisher uh to you know invest in that. So you know it's really amazing that uh, you know the tables have kind of turned in that you know this is you know you know the crowdfunding or uh, was it socialized uh, capitalism or something?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting concept, like with the the Raspberry Pi uh, robot thing, it's if you can sell it in the public and make it sound like it's going to work and that they're going to get their thing, that, that could really work as a way to market stuff and get things, the capital beforehand.
0: Yeah, so, and uh, the strange thing is, is that, you know, I recall... Like back in 2006, that Gabe Newell, the uh the guy at Valve, you know, sort of does you know the the idea man behind Steam, you know, I remember him saying that it was like, oh, episodic gaming is gonna you know episodic gaming is going to you know change gaming. It's gonna be the way things are done, and that really didn't pan out. Uh, but then later on, he said that uh, uh, like I think it might have been in 2009 or so where like I'm not exactly sure if he imagined it or predicted or you know tried to uh establish a model where gamers themselves would invest in the creation of the game. So, you know, instead of a publisher investing the money up beforehand, people would pre-order the game and that's, you know, the money that would uh you know sustain its development. That that's
1: good cuz then that kind of gives them a feel for the market if it's going to sell or not cuz you're
0: directly getting the the market involved at that point in time. So, and, uh, you know, he goes goes along and, uh, you know, mentions all the other uh, game designers that have used, uh, you know, crowdfunding and Kickstarter in particular uh, to make their games come to life. So I found this a very interesting read, you know, even from a not-gaming standpoint.
1: It the gears all over the place when I, from what I saw the article.
0: So... And uh, you know it's you know sort of like a step back, uh, especially as I'm playing through the original Fallout on my 20th century. So, yep. So you remember that uh, elemental uh, demo for Unreal Engine Four?
1: Uh, maybe I watched a few different demos. I'm not sure which yeah, one. Yeah, it's played. it's
0: it's the one that uh, started off like all oh, wintry and cold, and then lava starts flowing everywhere.
1: Okay, I think I know what you can talk about now.
0: Yeah, that uh, that demo is now available to download in benchmark form, and on my graphics card it looks absolutely stunning. So, and it looks like they added some uh, some more stuff at the end of it, and uh, this is made from the uh, the assets that uh, actually came with the Unreal Four engine. Uh, you know, because they had released the assets okay. for that with uh, I think it was four point one. So yeah, this this looks absolutely stunning. You can sort of s- see a little bit how it's like still a little bit fake and s- too smooth to be real. Mm-hmm. But this is this is still a very massive step up. So, and uh, now you can see what features are being developed in Unreal Four uh, because Epic made the Unreal Engine Four Trello board public. So this is uh, pretty sweet here. Yeah, they're. Uh, Was it their engine roadmap? So you can sort of see everything sort of organized by subsystem, it looks like. Uh, Like, for instance, rendering and physics, uh, animation, platforms, networking, and, like, all these other things.
1: That's that's an interesting idea of putting it public like that so people can see what's going on.
0: So, and I'm not sure if they accept pull requests, but, you know, I, I assume that... You know, if a game studio is using Unreal 4, and they want a certain feature that they could, you know, potentially develop it and, you know, say, hey, we have we made this feature, can you copy it or something? Yeah, uh,
1: that's true, because now with the, the subscription-based version of having the code being open like that, you get people doing that.
0: Yep, so this is, this is great. So, hey, uh, we're using Skype. We are using Skype. So Skype now allows video conference calls for free and uh before you had to like pay them like I'm not sure 10 bucks a month or something and they have done this on the best platforms uh that is like desktop platforms and I think Xbox 1 and I think they're uh, uh trying to bring it to like their uh their mobile versions as well.
1: So when I saw this my thought was um google hangouts we've had this for a long
0: time (laughs) yes yes this is for about a year from what i looked on the internet (laughs) um actually i think it's been a little bit longer than a year because uh like for instance whenever i've been on the gadget show or the uh the innuendo show that they use google hangouts pretty much exclusively and i'm pretty much the only uh boat anchor I'm pretty much the only boat anchor that continues to use Skype for things. So do they
1: record directly up to YouTube then? Is that how they do their shows?
0: Uh, no. Uh, so, uh, studio guy, uh, that's Ryan. Uh, Ryan has, I'm not sure, like maybe 10 computers in his basement or something. And he has them all wired into a mixer board. And he has one of the computers, like, plugged into that to actually record the show. Okay. And somehow he can make it so that, you know, everyone else can hear him, but the recording cannot. So, like, I remember one specific show that I was on where, you know, like, Ryan was talking to us during the show... But he was muted on the recording. Oh, really? So so I started to say, do do I hear a presence? Is there a ghost on the show or something?
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny. She's, so he's like listening and giving comments and, and trying to make you laugh or something and totally unre- unhearable by everyone else. That's funny.
0: Yeah. Like, it's, it's pretty, it was pretty weird, you know, listening in on that. You know, suddenly, like, everyone sounds like they're being interrupted, and then there's just silence. That's <laughs> <laughs> really weird. That is funny. But hey, we're not here to talk about Google Hangouts. We're talking about Skype. So, no doubt, Hangouts sort of uh, precipitated this. Uh, so, which will be very useful in our next episode, uh, for our one huh? guest that's coming. Uh, which which will be Ross Nover from The System. Uh, it makes a very, uh, how should say, very unique-looking uh, webcomic. So we'll be talking more about that later. So, yeah, specifically, for the last few years, we've offered group video calling to premium users on Windows Desktop, Mac, and more recently, Xbox One. We're excited to announce we're making group video calling free for all users on these platforms. So that's great, and you know especially especially after you know using Google Hangouts, it was sort of silly for them to keep on doing this. so competition yeah. is good It is good, produces innovation. Hey, speaking about competition, how about AMD? They've been uh, pretty much beaten beaten down by uh, Intel of late, but now they uh, they've totally decided to circumvent the uh, the market and they've instead just decided to start making ARM chips instead. So uh, they've uh, spilled a little bit more details about its upcoming X86 and ARM CPUs. Yes, that's right, ARM. Uh, you know those uh, uh processors in all those gadgets that they talk about on the gadget show? Apparently AMD is going to be integrating them into their CPUs. Uh, they're going to start with... Uh, Uh, the server market uh, because, you know, with uh, ARM CPUs being so much more power efficient and, you know, with, you know, greater power efficiency, you can have like several dozens or maybe hundreds of ARM cores on a single chip. And the idea is that with all this mass parallelism, you can Uh get, you can, you know, service like thousands of more users or whatever.
1: I see where they're going with this. This is a smart move. The interesting thing is, it said in the article that they're going to produce a a CPU that would share the same chip with their x eighty six model as their ARM model. So you could probably have a manufacturer could produce like a tablet or something and and release it in both if they wanted to do that.
0: Yeah, and uh, that might also help with development because you know you can run you know like a version of Android you know right on your desktop.
1: This is true.
0: Hmm. Or somehow, like, uh, you know, Microsoft might be able to integrate in some sort of feature where, like, you can have one binary, but it will have, like, x86 and ARM code in one. So, I mean, the possibilities are uh, rather interesting with this. Yes. So, and there, and I think that, you know, one of the reasons behind this is that, you know, Intel has you know cpus you know x86 cpus uh that are a lot better than amd's so but then amd realized that you know all these arm cpus are eating intel's lunch especially on the low end and people have been you know sort of experimenting with arm on server with varying levels of success um But, you know, AMD also has a lot of experience in the server market, something that, say, Qualcomm with their Snapdragons don't exactly have. Um, So, you know, I think that this is a, you know, great move. You know, it's one of those, if you can't beat them, join them kind of (laughs) things. So Interesting to see where it goes. So, um, it looks like uh, they'll have you know, this sort of architecture coming in uh, 2015 and 2016. So, you know, maybe a year or so away. So, and uh, they also mentioned that they are also developing a new uh, x86 core that will be deployed uh, along with this. So, you know, I really hope that uh, AMD comes roaring back with this. So, good going. Do you know anything about Level 3?
1: Not much, so you're gonna have to explain it.
0: So, um, uh, let's see. I'm not sure how how much you've looked into the architecture of the internet, but there's a group of networks that are called tier one networks, and the idea is that they touch every other tier one network, and uh, they're like huge. And they're supposedly the core of the internet, but that's sort of like a misnomer. Uh, but like all of their uh connections with the other tier one providers are settlement free. Uh That is like they don't pay money to each other because, you know, they're sort of like equals. And hey, you know, our customers need to talk to your customers and we need to share this stuff. So, uh Level 3 is one of those tier 1 providers and uh you know, every so often I'll see them uh like around uh, office buildings or something, like around manhole covers or something, you know, putting fiber in or whatever. Um and they you can sort of say that they're sort of like a middleman of the internet. Um and with the recent uh, peering disputes over uh especially Netflix uh, they have you know, gone in depth about you know, like their network and how much traffic flows over it and uh, congestion specifically. Uh, for instance, they said that uh, there are 12 companies uh, to which like, their interconnects between Level 3 and these other 12 companies uh, are congested. And I said that six of them, you know, they're actually doing something about it. They're, you know, adding more bandwidth, more uh, more ports or whatever in, you know, the data centers that all of these lines or pipes end in. Uh, And the other six are, uh, interestingly enough, all residential broadband uh, service providers. And once you break it down like that, you know, a pattern emerges. Uh, like, so these six ISPs, you know, these are, you know, common ISPs. They don't really name names, uh, but you can pretty much, you know, guess who they are. Uh, like AT&T, Time Warner, uh, uh, I think not Comcast or Verizon though. Um, but hey, that still might be the case. So like the connections between these ISPs, uh, get congested. And, you know, level three is actually, like, pointing, saying, hey, these, there are companies out there who will purposefully let their customer service degrade because they want to be paid for the traffic that goes over their networks. Uh, not exactly their traffic, but the content that goes over their networks. So, you know, in an ideal world, the uh, company that owns the network should not care whatsoever what content flows over their network. Uh, but... You know they want to get paid both ways. Uh, you know because you know their customers are paying them for a service. You know their customers are saying uh, you know I will give you fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or whatever per month to deliver bits to me. Uh, so th- the onus is then on the provider to go out and get those bits for them. Uh, but in this case, uh, the company wants to make the content provider pay them as well you know hey you're using up all this infrastructure all this bandwidth you're creating traffic we need money for that for some reason so they want to get paid on both ends of the pipe
1: see that's that's the thing if if i'm paying for internet i'm kind of paying my part of it they shouldn't care where the traffic comes comes from
0: so and by purposefully letting their traffic degrade on these interconnect points uh, they're doing a disservice to their own customers, and that then level three also goes and points out that internet service providers are the lowest ranked in terms of customer service among all industries in the U.S.
1: <laughs> That's interesting.
0: Uh, for instance, the average customer satisfaction across you know all companies is uh, about a seventy-eight. Uh, for broadband service providers, a sixty-five. So. Yeah, and they, you know, pretty much finished their blog post. Uh, Shouldn't a broadband consumer network with near-monopoly control over their customers be expected, if not obligated, to deliver a better experience than this? So, and, you know, they actually provide graphs of, you know, throughout the day of a congested uh, connection point and a not congested connection point, uh, along with the uh, rate of dropped packets. So, and even for the, you know, congested one, even at the time when it's not fully utilized, there are still dropped packets. So, and even for the info that gets through, there is a certain delay that is added on to that because, hey, the buffer's full, get in line. So, you know, this is, you know, one of these ridiculous situations that, you know, hopefully net neutrality will solve, but, you know, apparently... Uh, the people in charge aren't exactly mm, supportive of this. So, I mean, hopefully YouTube will get better.
1: Yeah, YouTube's kind of doesn't buffer very good sometimes. Of course, I, I wonder sometimes if that was Google trying to do some sort of a smart caching, because I've noticed if you open a YouTube video and then go away and then come back to it later, it's only buffered like a quarter of it, because it stops buffering if you aren't actually watching it.
0: Right. Uh But then there's, like, the smart caching where, like, there will be more copies of the video, like, closer to people. So, like, if a video is, like, really popular, mm-hmm. it'll be, you know, spread, you know, all around the world, supposedly closer to you. Whereas cool. whereas a video that doesn't get a whole lot of hits, like, maybe he's had 30 hits in, like, two years or something. Yeah. There would only be, like, two copies of it anywhere in the world.
1: That's true. I didn't think about that because Google does have this massive server farms, so they could do stuff like that. That's kind of interesting.
0: So, let's uh, step back and go over to uh, security for a moment. So, you're aware of two-factor authentication?
1: Uh, I was just reading about it, but you should explain it because I.
0: So, uh, two-factor authentication is where you know, for instance, you enter in a password to Google. And then Google says, we just sent you a number to your phone. What is it? Ah, okay. So it's basically a factor of something you know, which is your password, and something you have, which is your phone. So, you know, Google uh, realizes, hey, this guy has a phone number connected to his account, and, you know, you can text that phone. And to prove that this person is in possession of a phone, you ask him that number. So that's, you know, two factors, you know, something that, you know, something you have, and another factor is something that you are. Uh, This is essentially biometric stuff like fingerprints and eye scans. Uh, That isn't really used too much. But, uh, you know, uh, but the, uh, you know, common thing is, is the, uh, you know, the password and the phone. Uh, There's also password and like a QR code or some sort of other code that gets shoved through an algorithm that generates a code like, you know, Google would send.
1: It goes an airplane.
0: No, that, that was actually a loud truck or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, like there's, uh, like an algorithm for like temporary one time passwords or something. So, uh, you know, like one of the factors is that temporary code or password or whatever so that's something you have along with something you know, which is your password, and that's two factors. Um, why am I explaining all this in a long-winded fashion? Well, Authy, which is you know one of those things that generates those uh, codes, is now available on the desktop uh, for all three operating systems of the apocalypse. Uh, that's my uh, word for Windows, Mac, and Linux. So uh, you know it supports quite a few uh, you know services. Uh, Like, uh, you know, Google, obviously, uh, apparently Amazon AWS and, uh, you know, the uh, Microsoft Live login or whatever they call it now. So, yeah, I haven't started using this, but apparently now I have to. <laughs> so, uh, you uh, have you used Firefox recently? I'm I'm in Firefox right now. So uh, have you updated yet?
1: I don't think I have.
0: So, uh, Firefox 29 came out last week with that new UI. I'm not exactly sure what I think of it. Um, It's definitely a little bit different, and there's things I hate about it, but it's not that bad of a hate. Um, Did did the
1: awesome bar get fixed?
0: uh, I don't try the awesome bar in the way that you do. Uh, See, I have learned to eliminate colons from my searches. What, you never search for one word at a time? Uh, I do. That means I just have to wait longer. So, like sometimes I have to divide up the word with spaces. So, um, so Firefox twenty nine. Uh, it has. It also features support for those much bantered CSS variables now in draft form. So uh, I forget how long ago it was. Like maybe a couple of months ago, we talked about something called Myth and it was it's a css preprocessor which would take uh draft standards and you know sort of like make them backwards compatible uh-huh and css variables was one of those things that it included uh but now firefox 29 is the first browser to actually implement this in like real code
1: ah, i see so they they just define they were showing how like in the css Oftentimes, you, we use, like, the same background color, and then they're saying that you define a variable called main background color, and then you can use that variable down in the different sections of your CSS file. Yeah. That's pretty nice. I like that.
0: So, there's uh, plenty of uh, places I could use this in my uh, blog's CSS, mm-hmm. So, but I haven't really touched that in a while, so... Um, like, even just this morning, I uh, went over and had a lively chat with our uh, UX slash graphic designer person. And, uh, you know, I showed him my blog there, and he's like, I sort of like, uh, you know, the uh, color palette you got going on here. So, you know, with the uh, the sort of, you know, like, teal on dark. Uh, the,
1: the, the text is easy to read. Like, I, I, in that sense,
0: it is a good design. So... But uh, hey, if you don't like their new UI, uh, you can just use Firefox 10 on Windows 98, uh, which I actually have tried out. I've uh, started you know, turning on my 20th century uh, in the past week or two. And uh, there's actually a kernel extension that you can use that will allow you to you know, run you know, sort of newer uh, versions of stuff on it. And uh, like the latest Firefoxes that can run on yes. that is Firefox 10.
1: I'm guessing I probably... Yeah, I would have. I, I used Firefox in, in, on Windows 98 at one point in time. I was way back when. I don't know what version it would have been.
0: Like 1.5?
1: Probably. Like, I'm not even sure. Was there tabs then?
0: Firefox always has was, tab.
1: Okay. Yes, because I, I remember because we, we went from IE to Firefox, and that was when we picked up the tabs, yeah.
0: So, and I uh, remembered that uh, Firefox 10 was an extended support release, which uh, the last one is like from about a year and a half ago, and that runs fine. Okay. I did notice, however, that at least on my blog, that it totally uh, did not like my web fonts, so (laughs) I had to disable those. Uh, Otherwise, it runs okay. You know, I pulled up my blog on it, and it seemed to run okay. Deprecate something again, uh, WildFly. That uh, that one uh, Java application server uh, that I'm using now in lieu of GlassFish. Um, so I'm at work and I'm uh, programming that address deduplication thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, so I'm talking to a database and uh, I'm using the uh, uh, was the Object Relation Manager or something uh, called Hibernate. Uh, so you know, there's the server sort of maintains the database connections and stuff. It automatically opens and closes them for you. You know, does the pooling thing. Apparently, yep. uh, it doesn't automatically close those managed database connections. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, so I had to go through and put in try catch and finally on those. And on the finally, I had to explicitly close the uh, like the entity manager. To like release it back to like anything else that needs yes. it, um, and I think it was for about four hours or so this morning that you know I'm you know I finally released this uh, this project to testing, and I'm seeing like one by one like all this pool like filling up, and it's not you know going back down any. So like I'm trying to like sort through the server documentation. It's like okay, do I need to configure something differently? and at you know after a while there like i'm just like looking at the code again and it's like oh i'm requesting this one entity manager and then i'm opening up another one and i'm not closing it so that's what caused the leak i see so and you know glassfish never had that problem you know it would
1: close itself down eventually
0: yeah so you know just take that i guess so, yeah. At least on the, uh, on the e-commerce platform that I use, like I don't think about databases hardly at all.
1: That wasn't quite as bad as the bug I wrote the one time. We were having trouble in a screen. Uh, it's where you make a referral that goes into the system before it turns in an order. And it has, it has these, uh, we call them stages that go on the referral, things that the user has to work through. And so sometimes we get a referral that's being saved and it has so many stages, the beginning like 800 saved to them. And so we we're getting like that many connections made and we we're running out of connections to the Oracle server. And so I, I was looking at the code, it's like, well, if the connection's closed, it just reopens another one. So I'll just close the connection after we, we get done with the loop and we'll be good. <laughs> so it worked. And then a couple of weeks later, <laughs> I heard that things weren't being saved properly in other parts of the application. (laughs) Turns out by
0: closing the connection without committing it, it didn't save some of the data in the transaction. (laughs) Yep. So, you know, when I first started working with an Oracle database, you know, like I'm wondering, it's like, okay, like I'm putting in, like, I'm running insert queries over here, but why am I not seeing it over there? I can run a select statement Uh. and it shows up. And then I figured out if I closed the, uh, the database manager program, that suddenly it would appear everywhere else. I'm like, okay, this is stupid. <laughs> so then I discovered a commit transaction button on the toolbar. That would do it. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, anyways, uh, this Andrew Bailey bloke is uh, letting everyone steal his blog content and he spilled his beans on some of his backup regime. So, um, yeah, I went on and uh pretty much uh posted the script I use to uh you know uh enter in the uh encryption keys and back up to my external hard drive so and I used some uh rather uh contorted regex in order to detect the directories and stuff where things are mounted uh so I could you know automatically unmount and lock the device once oh, it's I done. See. And, you know, and of course, you know, run the rsync command so it knows where to uh, copy to. So and uh, then I uh, was thinking, it's like, hey, in this backup mood, you know, I uh, came across uh, Linus Torvalds, one of his quotes (laughs) that says only wimps use tape backup. Real men just upload their important stuff on FTP and let the rest of the world mirror it. So, uh, in that spirit, I have, uh, you know, taken the actual, you know, like the raw content, the raw backups, and Uh even the big, huge source images, uh, in the form of game screenshots. I have put those all on Google drive and made those public. So
1: have you, oh wait, Google Drive's not going to give you any statistics. I was going to ask if you saw anyone download them, but you wouldn't have that visibility.
0: Yeah. So, and like, (laughs) I really don't care.
1: Google Drives probably back up enough for you.
0: Uh well I also have this stuff on SkyDrive and Box. So You're you're probably safe. <laughs> um so you know, Linus, you know, he, you know, doing the Linux, uh he you know, that's his thing. You know, that's his most important thing, it's the Linux kernel. It should be everywhere. So, you yeah. know, it's pretty easy for him to say, Oh, this is my most important stuff. And put it on FTP somewhere. It is
1: everywhere. (laughs) So, uh, this week, I just... Tonight, I got an email that the Pittsburgh Test Fest is... uh, Tech Fest. Tech Fest is uh, up for registration. I don't know if you've gone to it before or not, uh, Andrew, but I went a couple years back, and it's pretty good. They have a lot of different speakers come in and talk about software engineering topics. Uh, The one year I went, they talked. one of the speakers was talking about continuous integration... Uh, unit testing and so that was that was pretty good uh, and I think the one year they were talking about you know, JavaScript jQuery like they have a very broad variety of topics you can you can uh, go to and there's like sessions and you have to choose which ones you're interested in for each session hmm. so anyways that that's a, a very good good event so I thought I'd mention that
0: okay we'll keep that in
1: mind But you do have to register early because it sells out very fast. Last Uh year, I missed out on it because I thought, oh, I need to register for that. I looked at, oh, it's already sold out. (laughs) So (laughs) register early.
0: Yeah, it's it's like one of those uh, conferences or expos uh, where the tickets sell out within a minute or something.
1: Yeah, this one it has, when you go to purchase, it it has a counter at the page and says, you have eight minutes to complete the purchase. Otherwise, it goes back in the pool of available tickets. Yeah.
0: So so we uh, have plenty of feedback this week, uh, starting with uh, Buckface. Uh, he, he says, I've always wondered why IDEs aren't among the most perfectly made tools ever. Uh, people who make things that they are going to use tend to have a high motivation to do well and an understanding of what it means for the thing to be made well. I agree.
1: Yeah, you would think that's like in Visual Studio sometimes I'll be doing something and I'll get this object reference error and it's like, really? What do you guys
0: use when you program? (laughs) Uh, They'd probably yell at you and say that you're doing it wrong. That could be. So, uh, studio guy, uh, Ryan, uh, chimes in again. He says, congratulations on becoming PERMA co-host. Thank you uh he asked you know what's the pizza made by and uh, that's pizza milano i think i've mentioned that before so uh, we did talk
1: about that at the beginning of this podcast
0: yes so uh ryan said that i recently got into the github hipster editor uh adam.io similar to sublime but lacks cross-platform versions hey Adam was just open source not too long ago, uh, like yesterday as of this recording. So, yeah, you know, it uh, you know, explains that it's been released under an MIT license. And uh, hey, maybe it might uh, come to cross platform. So, he, uh, Ryan said that he really liked the uh, sponsor. And uh, Ryan says that he's never used iWork apps. And that's a really horrible situation to have. Uh, being that you can't open up, like, really old stuff in it. Uh, stuck no matter what you try. Office and drive for a reason. Uh, Ryan says that it's strange that large web companies like Google and Facebook don't donate some time to open SSL. Well, not anymore. Strange you ask that. Because <laughs> Google, Facebook, the Linux Foundation, and even Microsoft, along with about a dozen others, have formed an initiative to fund critical open source projects. And the first up, OpenSSL. So, uh, like, they're apparently these companies are going to gather together a fund that will, uh, like, specifically target an open source project for a year. So, you know, it's it's great that they're, uh, you know, doing OpenSSL. Uh, Ryan says that LibreSSL will do just as well as LibreOffice. So, I guess that means amazing, in other words. So I I haven't
1: uh, heard much about the LibreOffice lately. I know a lot of people seem to use it. Is that your impression, too, that a lot of people pick it up?
0: Yeah, because, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of OpenOffice.org. Let's see. So OpenOffice.org was like the free version or like the free alternative to Microsoft Office. So uh, it was shortly after uh, Oracle bought Sun Microsystems that uh, you know everyone's like, "Hey, this is a fresh start. Let's do this." And uh, Oracle said, "Well, it's either us or them. And I'm not sure if they really anticipated everyone choosing not Oracle, <laughs> <laughs> because you know, even today, I admired the speed and efficiency at which Oracle killed OpenOffice. Um, so everyone else chose, uh, I think it was like a document foundation and did the LibreOffice instead. So, uh, like over the past two years or something, they've just been, uh, like cleaning out the code base and, uh, uh, like actually, uh, like stop using libraries that have been, uh, deprecated even way back when the project was founded. So it looks like it's, uh, very, uh, much, very much a healthier, uh, code base now. Uh, Ryan says that the server baby DNA explanation was amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it seems like everyone liked that. Uh, Ryan says, Photorealism. It reminds me of the uncanny valley NVIDIA claimed to have found with facial graphics with their compute grid. It doesn't look that special. Um, I think that's the point of the uncanny valley. Uh, that references the psychological effect that a closer, a, uh, representation of a person becomes, uh, like the more unsettling it becomes. Uh, at least at the very end of the uh of the uh chart there. Uh Ryan says audio realistic podcasts coming soon and I add now with echoey acoustics. <laughs> uh Ryan adds Carnegie is famous indeed. Ian goes to the U of M Morris which is different from the U of M Twin Cities where I am. So, and I think uh we might have taken a tour around uh Me and Ryan taking a tour around places Uh, I think it might have been last time he was on in the Fringe. So Ryan asks, if Steam goes away in the future and you have all the game files saved away, when you inflate them again, will they work without Steam? And my guess is probably not as is. uh, But I remember Gabe Newell saying that they have liberation patches ready to go in the event of a failsafe. And that, you know, inspired me to look around a little bit and found, uh, uh, found a Reddit thread where someone, you know, actually asks, I ask Steam support what happens to my games if Valve goes out of business? And uh, their response was, in the unlikely event of the discontinuation of the Steam network, measures are in place to ensure that all users will t- c- continue to have access to their Steam games. So I'm not exactly sure what that will entail. But, hey, at least they've, uh, you know, envisioned this scenario. So, and, you know, like all those uh, movies and stuff where someone activates the failsafe and yes. and everyone dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that might just be an artifact of, you know, from the 80s and stuff where, like, the communists are coming and you have to secure information. So you have to kill everyone to make sure it stays secret. So it's it's a rather bloody option, I guess. I mean, it's sort of worse than Scorched Earth. So, and uh, on that topic, though, uh, at least on Valve, anyway, um someone told me that Google will buy Valve next year. And since Google kills everything that isn't in beta, Steam will be shut down soon thereafter. On the other hand, Half-Life 3 will be in beta. So, there you go. Half-Life 3 confirmed. Uh Ryan says USB 3.1++. It can't come soon enough. My server is also USB 2.0 based, sadly. I could add a USB 3.0 card, but it's pointless at this point. Uh, but, you know, USB 3.0 is is nice, but differential backups or transfers with RSync are pretty fast, actually. Uh, it's the overhead of typing in the encryption key that for the drives that bug me. And uh, he adds, congrats on the guest for the 21st. And if you'd like to submit feedback, uh, use that contact link on the the nexus.tv. And uh, as always, today is International Backup Awareness Day. So you might want to take a look at my script and uh, upload your blog stuff to Google Drive and post it. Um, Again, uh, we will be having a guest. uh, His name is Ross Nover. And he he does the System Comic, and he will be joining us uh, uh, for the next show. And that'll be around the 21st. Uh, he will be the third person on this podcast who has had a Kickstarter. So send in some relevant questions to grill him with. So, aside from that, that seems to be uh the end of another podcast. So, it. let's uh, uh, see, I'm not sure if there's going to be another thunderstorm rolling through. Uh, we had one this morning.
1: That was pretty bad. I, I drove to work and it was kind of dark and dim. Yeah, I I was at work. I looked outside. It's like pitch black out there.
0: Well, uh, recently, I've, you know, sort of been awakened, you know, just because there's light out at about six or 630 in the morning. And it was really weird, you know, waking up at 630. And, you know, there's, you know, light out. And then I go take a shower. And I come out of the shower, and it's dark again. <laughs> I mean, what? Wasn't it just lighter like a few minutes ago? Is it this morning or dawn or something? So, uh, let's see. Uh, as mentioned, I will probably be playing some more Fallout on, uh, on 20th Century. I just got done killing a whole bunch of deathclaws. So, I'm not sure how close that is to the end of the game. So, I've been... I'm not exactly sure how many hours I'm into it. So, um, that seems to be fun enough. You know, with the old school CRT monitors with actual genuine scan lines. <laughs> something we don't have on LCD monitors anymore. Yes, good old days. So, uh, let's see. Aside from that, I think that might be all that I'm doing. How about you? Oh, hopefully I'll
1: make it out turkey hunting again on Saturday. Maybe get one. I saw a turkey last Saturday, but it wasn't wasn't a, a gobbler and didn't have a beard, so it wasn't legal to shoot. Ah, uh, yes.
0: Yeah. What is it with turkeys these days? Um, because I remember back in January, I had to stop on the road to uh, you know have a flock cross in front of me, um, and then it was like maybe three weeks ago up in the park where I saw something moving and it went behind a uh, like a slab of concrete. And then it just kept on walking. I was like, oh, that's a turkey there. And uh, I'm like, okay, look around. There's probably more. But that was the only (laughs) one. And then I'm not sure where I was driving. I think I might have been driving to work where uh, there was a turkey, you know, crossing the road. And it's a pretty big road. And I recall someone having stopped on the other side and gotten out with their kid. And they were probably, like, looking at it and this turkey just crosses the road, and it crosses right in front of my car at the stoplight.
1: You see, he figured you were stopped and it was safe to
0: go. <laughs> well, but uh, by the time he was, like, halfway across my lane, uh, like, the light had turned green, and the car in front of me had started pulling away, and that's when I realized, oh, crap. <laughs> might want to, st- <laughs> you know, pick it up a little bit, so. <laughs> so, Yeah. It seems like there's a healthy population of those around, and also deer. Uh, I think I might have mentioned uh, last month that uh, it might have been two months ago now that some deer had come up like right outside my window. Like you remember that blind? That is. Oh always... yes, I've
1: seen the blind before.
0: Yeah, like not even two feet away from that blind, there was like deer on the other side of the window.
1: That's not far from your kitchen table, is it? <laughs> I'm assuming you eat at your desk.
0: Yep. Uh Uh-huh, I do too. (laughs) But I don't have the implements with which to process deer. So, all right. Well, um, don't forget next time we'll be uh, having a guest, hopefully. So I guess we'll talk to you later. So have a good one.